We'll hear argument first this morning in case 07689, Bartlett versus Strickland. Mr. Browning. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the Voting Rights Act should be interpreted in such a way as to encourage a transition to a society where race no longer matters. In North Carolina, coalition districts have been crucial in moving towards Congress's ultimate goal. Coalition districts bring races together by fostering political alliances across racial lines. As a result, they serve to diminish racial polarization over time. Coalition districts help us in reaching the point where race will no longer matter in drawing district lines. These districts bring us one step closer to fulfilling our nation's moral and ethical obligation to create an integrated society. How can you say that this brings us closer to a situation where race will not matter when it expands the number of situations in which uh, redistricting authorities have to consider race? Well, Your Honor, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, um, the uh, — it will require somewhat an increase in the number of of districts that would be drawn. There is no question about that. But that increase is not substantial. But it does cause race to be much less of a factor in the redistricting process. Currently, if a General Assembly has a choice between drawing a coalition district or a majority-minority district, the 50 percent rule that the North Carolina Supreme Court adopted encourages states to draw a majority-minority district. Um, And when you do that, it causes race to redominate in the process. It, when you it seems have to me to be a criticism of the majority-minority district approach in the first place. Well, Your Honor, it is a recognition of the fact that coalition districts allow us to move away from majority-minority districts and create districts where races are working together. What about influence districts? Your Honor, you move. You've moved from majority-minority to uh, crossover districts, should you continue to move to so-called influence districts? Your Honor, the the decision in LULAC makes clear that influence districts are not protected under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. But under your definition of coalition districts, race is the key factor. Your Honor. And you're telling us if, if we have a rule that makes race the key factor, then race doesn't matter. Your Honor, it is a matter of, under the Voting Rights Act, Congress has made clear that uh, districts should be drawn to protect minority voting rights. When there are areas of the country where there is racial polarization, uh, districts, race has to be considered in drawing districts that will give minorities an equal opportunity, just as majority minority. I thought you were proposing a brave new world of coalition districts. Your Honor, and race has Based on race. Uh, Justice Kennedy, um, you have to consider race in drawing these districts. There's no question about that. But that's the very thing that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act requires us to do. Um, And you do that because there is racial polarization. What's the authority that says you must consider race in drawing the districts, assuming that you don't have an existing majority-minority district? What's the what's what's authority do you cite for the fact that you must consider race in drawing districts? What 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 do I read to find that? Well, Your Honor, that's certainly the decision in Thornburg versus uh, 
uh, jingles um, under the — Oh, that's the majority, that's the majority, majority district. Yes, Your Honor. Um, that, that was a majority district. This course okay, — So then what other case do you have? Well, Your Honor, um, this Court, of course, has left open the issue of whether the Voting Rights Act would protect minorities. In your statement that you must always consider race in drawing districts is not, is not supported. Uh, or is it at least it's a new proposition that you're arguing for us here? Your Honor, my, my point is when you're drawing districts under Section 2, of course race has to be considered. But it's considered because the process is not equally open to minorities. Unfortunately, North Carolina has a long history of discrimination, and that discrimination has resulted in current effects in the voting place. There is racially polarized voting that has been stipulated to in this case. There has been — Well, I would have thought the possibility of coalition districts would be evidence that the Voting Rights Act has succeeded, rather than evidence that you need to apply it more broadly. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, the coalition districts are certainly evidence that we've made progress towards Congress's ultimate goal under the Voting Rights Act, but we're not there yet. In this district, the expert testimony is that only 15 to 30 percent of uh, whites will vote for a black candidate, and that is still very racially polarized, but coalition districts help us to move away. It, it, they help to diminish the amount of racial polarization over time so that eventually we won't need to be looking at race at all in drawing district lines. But we're — Well, I mean, the obvious question when you say 15 to 30 percent is what number of crossover voters would you say demonstrates that you no longer need to consider race in shaping um, a coalition district? Your Honor, in, in the Jingles case, this Court um, uh, stated that it was a district-by-district district determination. There's no bright-line rule as to where crossover voting is um, so great that it doesn't satisfy the third Jingles prong. Here, however, the district works. I mean, of course, it could be the 70 percent that don't vote for a particular candidate. At some point, you have to conclude that it's based on the candidate rather than on race. Uh, Your Honor, at some point, that's true, that, that it would be issues beyond uh, race. But here, the expert report, and as stipulated to by respondents, this um, voting is racially polarized. There is some crossover voting, but not enough to say that the effects of past discrimination have been eliminated. That crossover voting is sufficient for this district to work. You With can't say where, how much crossover voting uh, would be uh, so large um, as to uh, make a difference? You can't say where the line is statistically? Uh, Your Honor, this, this Court's, again, the decision in Jingles makes clear that that is a district-by-district district determination. And that, that has been stipulated here, right, that you meet the, the third Jingles or Jingles factor. So it's not an issue in this case, but the point was made that um, in, in one of the cases that you rely on in METS, that reliance on crossovers to prove the ability to elect a candidate of a racial minority's choosing undercuts the argument that the majority votes as a block against the minority preferred candidate. So there is tension between the crossovers on the one hand and showing that the dominant race votes as a block. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, I completely agree that at some point 
the um, crossover voting becomes so great that you no longer have to, to take into account district lines. Unfortunately, we're not here case, again. And if that's the case, then your test imposes a statistical standard just as uh, your opponent's test does, doesn't it? It's just a different one. Yes, Your Honor. That um, what we're proposing and what we think is required by the text of Section 2 is you simply take the existing jingles factors and you look at the amount of racially polarized voting, and from that you're able to readily calculate the size of the minority group that would be sufficiently large to elect a minority well, uh, suppose there's candidate. 40 percent crossover voting, and uh, that's a little bit that, — that's not quite enough to — for the minority candidate to win. Uh, Your Honor, um, uh, again, the — whether the third jingles prong is satisfied obviously is a district-by-district district determination. Here, however — You can't even say that 40 percent would be sufficient in every instance that that might be — you know, that, that might not be enough? Uh, I'm hesitant since this Court has not set a specific um, limit, and that's, again, an issue that's been stipulated, too, in this case. Um, uh, well, you, you don't suggest that if there were 40 percent white crossover voting, that we would find white block voting within the Gingles condition, I, 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 do you? Do you, you think that is a serious possibility? Uh, no, I think it would be okay. very, very unrealistic that you'd have 40 percent. So I mean, you really do have an answer to Justice Alito's question. Yes, Your Honor. What, what is the answer? What percentage of crossover voting would make this not uh, actionable under Section 2? Uh, and, again, since the third prong is not an aspect of this case — So you don't have an answer to Justice Alito's question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it would seem that 40 percent is a very high amount of crossover voting. That, of course, is not our case where um, the, the crossover voting that is necessary to make this um, coalition district work is 18 percent crossover voting. Do, do you have racially polarized uh, voting when, when you have as high a crossover vote as 40 percent? I mean, you, you say uh, we, we apply the normal jingles factors, but uh, it seems to me 40 percent crossover is fairly, fairly high. Forty uh, percent is a high number, and particularly but you still the fact that, that, it is that, that we can confidently say this is racially polarized. Uh, Your Honor, here, however, under this case, there's not 40 percent. Um, but but you're opening yourself to this line of questioning about the third factor, which is conceded by both sides. So it's not in this case. You're opening it by having a test that looks to the second and third factor and leaves the first factor out of it. I mean, whether you agree with it or not, the 50 percent line is bright if you know what's in and what's out. You don't have any test for the first factor that's comparable that, that would give district courts uh, and attorneys some uh, degree of security about how you determine the first factor. Well, Your Honor, as the, the language of the Court used in the DeGrande decision, it's whether the minority group is sufficiently large to elect a minority preferred candidate. There are, of course, um, limiting factors on the size of the coalition district that could be drawn. There are practical limiting factors and there are legal limitations. The practical limitation, of course, is in North Carolina, given what has happened in past elections, 
the North Carolina General Assembly appropriately concluded that a minority group of less than 40 percent would simply not work, that it would not be effective to give rise to a minority um, uh, a district in which minorities could elect a minority preferred candidate. There's also a legal limitation. What? This Court's decision in LULAC, the Court made clear that influence districts are not protected by Section 2. So as a result, the minority group will by necessity have to control its coalition partner. Otherwise, it would simply be an influence district. And here at um, minority group of 40 percent, the minority group in the area is substantially larger than the crossover voting that's needed to have an ability to elect. Under your theory, it would be possible to challenge a majority minority district on the ground that you could draw a different coalition district, maybe more than one coalition district. Let's put it that way. If you could draw a majority minority district and you could draw two crossover districts, does the Voting Rights Act impose a, a limit on the choice? Your Honor, our position is that the um, — assuming all of the factors under jingles could be met, that if you had a minority group that was packed in um, to a um, — one district um, and in, in its place two coalition districts could be effectively drawn and those districts would actually work and you could meet all of the other standards under jingles, the district was geographically compact, there is um, — That's uh, an easy — that I suspect that's a common hypothetical. You could draw a district with 80 percent minority uh, uh, voters, or you could have, as you have here, you know, two 40 percent districts. Which, and the Voting Rights Act requires what? The, in that situation, assuming you could meet all of the, the jingles factors, that, yes, that 80 percent district should be drawn as two 40 percent districts. And aren't, aren't, you, aren't you adopting the principle of maximization? No, Your Honor. Um, Is, uh, let, me, let me ask you this, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been a long time since, since Gingles came along, and I may be forgetting things. But I, I, I thought when, when you are, uh, are given the alternatives you were just given, one 80 percent, two 40 percent, uh, that because there is not a principle of maximization, there simply is not an abstract or bright-line answer to the question, and that in order to get an answer to the question, you look at all of the other things that, that districting authorities look to, and you see how they add up, whether we're talking about compactness, uh, congruency uh, with, with, uh, uh, with, with other political lines, and so on. And unless you look to all of the other things that reasonably can and should be taken into consideration when districting is done, you simply cannot answer the question, should there be 240s or 180? Am I wrong? Well, uh, Justice Souter, certainly the, the criteria that you've referred to have to be part of the districting process. But they weren't but, part of your answer to the Chief Justice. Well, my, my point is that when minorities are basically put in an enclave, in a separate district, um, but yet it is possible to draw two districts, two coalition districts, and the other prongs of jingles have not been met so that uh, there is not rough proportionality throughout the state. Yes, this, the, the districting body needs to consider drawing two districts 
Um, uh, it needs to consider it, but I thought your answer was it needs to do it. Is that your answer? Uh, yes, Your Honor. It would be. It is our answer that um, if a district, uh, if there is not rough proportionality in, in a state, there is a district that is a supermajority, and there's no reason for that supermajority to be Okay. In place. If there's no reason for the supermajority, my point is that you cannot answer the question in the abstract. And when you start to answer it, as you're doing now, you're going beyond the abstract, and you're getting into facts outside the, 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 the mere choice between 240s and 180. And, and that's, that seems to me to, to, to be correct. I, I, at least, if it's not correct, you and I are making the same mistake. No, Justice Souter, your point is well taken, okay. and I agree that, that with a hypothetical like that, it is very difficult unless you're actually considering the specific situation of the district. Right. Well, we're, what you propose is going to inject courts into the drawing of, of districts much more frequently than they, than they already are injected. Uh, the reality is that one of the factors, you mentioned uh, 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 contiguousness and, uh, and, and uh, county lines and so forth, but one of the factors that legislatures always take into account is incumbent protection, and the incumbent is always going to rather be in an 80 percent district than in a uh, so-called 40 percent coalition district. I think you're, you're unrealistic to expect uh, uh, state legislatures to draw districts that way, where everybody will have a chance. The whole object of it is that nobody will have a chance, just the incumbents. That, 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 that's what's going on. Your Honor, I, I think what Congress has required courts to do is to look at the overall picture of a district. Um, that Congress, in connection with the Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, used very broad language, phrases like totality of circumstances and opportunity to participate and elect. So clearly, Congress intended for a broad approach to be taken and a functional. Well, that's fine, but you just can't wave a, a magic wand. It, it, Congress also intended primarily to leave it up to the legislatures under, under guidelines to be sure. And when you have a choice of, of 180 percent or two or even three, 40 percent, it's clear to me what the legislature is going to choose. Well, Your Honor, and that's the very point of the Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, is when minorities do not have an equal opportunity to elect their candidate of choice, where they're packed into districts. So we'll, we will be injected into this very political game much more frequently than we now are. I, I have always regarded the 50 percent jingles thing as, a, as simply a self-protection uh, prescription for the courts where you can look, you can be clear and say, you know, close enough for government work. But if, if you want us to figure out uh, whether there could be three districts, two districts, instead of this one district, uh, you're, you're just, it seems to me, uh, tossing the whole, uh, the whole project of, of drawing districts into the courts. And that, that, is, that is not something that I, for one, favor. Uh, in this case, uh, which way does the presumption favoring what the legislature did cut? Here, the court set aside what the legislature did. Is that not right? 
Uh, yes, Your Honor. The, the North Carolina Supreme Court determined that this district should not cut county lines. And I, ironically, that county line was a county line that was originally created to segregate blacks in Wilmington in the southern portion of the county from whites in the northern portion of the county. So that original discriminatory act is now being used to keep a district from, from being in place that is a district that has a proven ability to elect a minority. Well, that, that, that's something new. I thought we took the case, at least I've been thinking about the case, on the assumption that there is a valid state law uh, that is being superseded. Now, if you're questioning the, uh, the validity of the state law, that's something new. That hasn't been raised here, has it? Uh, Your Honor, uh, the, the government has asserted that there should be a near 50 percent test, which includes as part of it a um, either the, the district is close to 50 percent or there is an element of discrimination. You're, 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 yes. you're, you're indicating to us that the county line uh, standard that the state court invoked as a matter of state law is itself questionable because it was based on a, 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 a prohibited racial animus. And I, I, I indicated that that's very new to me. I, I thought we were taking the case on the proposition that the, that the county line rule is a neutral, valid state law principle. Now, it may or may not be superseded by the, by the requirements of Section 2. That's what we're arguing about. But this is the first time I've heard that we have to somehow question uh, the underlying state rule under the 14th Amendment. I thought we took the case on the assumption that the state rule is valid. Justice Kennedy, the decision of the North Carolina Supreme Court is to adopt an inflexible 50 percent rule. That, that was the issue that was resolved on summary judgment uh, by the — I'm talking about the county line rule. Yes, Your Honor, um, that the county line rule — um, uh, the North Carolina Supreme Court concluded that this district could not cut county lines because this should not be treated as a Section 2 district. Um, We're fighting we, over I mean, the district that you want to draw, the cr crossover district, would have 39 percent African-American voters. The district that complied with state law, the county line, would have 35 percent. In a, where the assumption is that you have a significant degree of crossover voting. Is that really a difference worth changing the Voting Rights Act jurisprudence for? Uh, Your Honor, the plaintiffs have, and the respondent and the government have referred to an alternative district that would not cut this county line that would have a black voting age population of 35 percent. The problem with that is there is absolutely no testimony that that their alternative district would be in any way workable. As a matter of fact, the undisputed testimony in the Joint Appendix at page 73 through 74 is to the contrary. What do you, this, what do you mean by workable? It, that this, the district that they proposed was simply prepared by their attorney looking at a map. There is absolutely no testimony that this would be an effective minority district, that there would be a, an equal opportunity for minorities. Because it's 4 percent less well, than the district you put? It is, it is a matter of the percentage of um, voting age population, but more importantly, the district they drew would have put a 
black incumbent, black Democrat incumbent in the same district with a white Republican incumbent. And if they were serious about So it gets back to Justice Scalia's point that this is designed to protect incumbents. Well, Your Honor, uh, incumbency certainly has to be considered in in the context of what the Voting Rights Act requires us to do, which is to look at the total picture. It is a functional approach. It is a matter of looking, undertaking a searching evaluation of the past and present political reality. Mr. Browning, I thought there was something in the record that said never in North Carolina's history have you had uh, African Americans able to choose the able to elect the candidate of their choice where the minority population was less than 38.37%. Uh, Justice Ginsburg there there are districts such as Wake County the seat of government where a minority has been elected with less than 38 percent. But in areas of the state where there's highly racially polarized voting, 38 percent roughly is the effective floor that the General Assembly recognized as being workable for creating a district such as this. Um, I'll also note that this issue um, was not presented to the North Carolina Supreme Court. The issue of whether there's an alternative district that would somehow be feasible and uh, workable. Well, the government proposed that if we succeed, we should remand on that question. Uh, Your Honor, that would certainly be one possibility, but but the North Carolina Supreme Court resolved this as a straight legal question as to whether the 50 percent rule is in place and is in the — is an inflexible rule. And not only do they they impose this rule with respect to this district, they essentially had a mandatory injunction to the North Carolina General Assembly to never draw a district at less than 50 percent if it cuts too many county lines. And that is even inconsistent with the United States' view of Section 2. And for that reason alone, the decision below should be reversed. If there are no other questions, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Browning. Mr. Thurman. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The rule proposed by petitioners in this case would effectively require maximization, resulting in, as the Court has recognized, judicial involvement in Many, many more situations. I, I don't know why it would require maximization. It would, it would certainly open the door to, to, to more districts required by Section 2 than if we have a 50 percent rule. But I, I think your, your brother conceded uh, that when, when you draw districts, uh, you are, are bound by our case law as well as tradition to look to something more than maximization, and maximization is, in fact, not the law. So I don't see why it would be required. Your Honor, in this situation, the state's position is the people of North Carolina and their ultimate voice, their state constitution, have spoken and said that county lines should be kept whole to the extent practical. And the state's position is the legislator gets to disregard that. And based on the cases, based on LULAC, at 25 percent. What's that got to do with maximization? 
Well, Your Honor, that that would be the position that they would take of every district that could be drawn, regardless of neutral. There's, there's, there's no question that if uh, if they are if they if they win this case, that I think there's no question there will be more claims uh, requiring. Uh, or potentially more claims requiring adjustment of lines based on avoiding a Section 2 violation. I, I, I would almost think that was common ground. But that is a different thing from saying that the result of those claims is going to be a required maximization. And that's, that's the only point that I, that I, I meant to pick, uh, pick up on. Uh, Your Honor, it seems that if there are going to be more potential claims, and as every legislative body, school board, city council, whatever it is, has to follow Section 2, they will have to take this into account. They will be facing potential claims. And they will have to, do, to run the risk of, do we look to try to maximize a district that might not otherwise be required, that might violate a neutral criteria? You're saying they will tend to maximization in order to avoid litigation. Your Honor, I think that is absolutely okay. true. Why, and, in the, why in the world did you stipulate to block voting in a situation where you have nearly 20 percent crossover voting? Your Honor, the answer to that question is we were 20 months into litigation. We had just received a partial ruling on cross motions for summary judgment. We were already at the midpoint of the decade. If this court should affirm the North Carolina Supreme Court, my clients will have one election in which they have a district that complies with the North Carolina Constitution. We quite simply wanted to move the case along. Well, but it seems to me you, you complicated situations on a rather critical point. If what seems to me a basic conundrum. How can you have block voting and at the same time have significant crossover voting? You take one of those off the table, it's kind of hard to address the, the basic issue in the case. I agree, Your Honor. The other point that I would point out is it was not a stipulation that there was sufficient block voting within either of the districts that was drawn. There was a stipulation there was evidence that would show there was block voting within the two counties. The, pop, the district that could be drawn, there is no stipulation that the alternative district does not comply and would, and therefore would require the creation of the 39 percent district. Well, since the district is drawn from the counties and there's a stipulation with respect to the counties, doesn't it follow in the absence of some surprising fact that there would be block voting or that the stipulation would cover block voting in the district? Your Honor, there are very different populations in these two counties. And that is referenced as in the record with regards to the growth in the populations. And there's a very different uh, minority population in the two counties because of the influx. But regard, of regardless of, of, of the, 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 the variations in mix, if you're stipulating that there's block, count, block voting in County A, block voting in County B, and you've got a district made up part of A, part of B, doesn't it follow? Uh, in, in the absence of some pretty specific evidence to the contrary, that, that in the district there probably is going to be block voting? Your Honor, I would respectfully submit that it does not follow within a particular section of a district. I think we all realize... Well, do you have evidence in the record? Did you put evidence in the record that this particular district is carved from some peculiar section of County A and County B so that the general block voting pattern does not apply in the district? Your Honor, there's evidence in the record, as is cited in the brief, that uh, minority candidates, black candidates for judicial office and for state uh, auditor receive 
between 59 and 62 percent of the vote in the proposed district. We would respectfully submit that that comprises evidence that there's not sufficient block voting. Well, but you stipulated but, yeah. uh, you didn't want to argue the third factor. You wanted, you just started out by saying we were tired of this litigation. We wanted to concentrate on one issue and one issue only, and that was the 50 percent rule. And now you're suggesting that, well, no, the stipulation really didn't stipulate away the third factor. I thought you were, you were giving in on that issue so that you could get the first issue decided. Your Honor, we did make the stipulation that there was evidence sufficient to support, support a finding, and that we stand by. There was evidence. They had an expert that was willing to so testify. I was responding to Justice Souter's question of was there evidence in the record to support the contention that there might not be block voting within the alternative district, and that was the evidence that black candidates can receive in excess of 60 percent of the vote in the 35 percent district. Okay, but just help me on the facts, because I, I, I'm, I may have misunderstood the facts. You're saying you did not stipulate that there was block voting. You stipulated that there was sufficient evidence for a fact-finder to find that there was block voting. Is that your position? Your Honor, uh, this is on page 130A um, of the, uh, I believe this is their uh, submission. The Han- uh, I'm sorry, what, what's the color of the, bre- of the cover on this? Is it the brown one or the white one? I believe this is the white one, Your Honor. Um, okay, and you're 130. One thirty-eight. Yeah. Yes, Your Honor. Yeah, um, and that starts over on the foot. But that, uh, in terms of the block voting, plaintiffs further stipulate that the evidence presented by the defendants is sufficient to support a finding of fact that the racial difference in the preference of voters results in the white majority voting sufficiently as a block to usually enable it to defeat the minority's preferred candidate. And uh, again. That comes down from the top of the paragraph, not to read the entire thing to the court, that it was Pender in New Hanover County as it started actually on 129A. And that, that, was, that was the stipulation. And but what, what do you make of the, the, the beginning of the next paragraph? Plaintiffs hereby advise the court that they do not wish to be heard further or to present evidence re- regarding the remaining issues. Doesn't, I, I'm not sure what that's getting at, but when I looked at it, I thought it meant that the stipulation can control, i.e., it, it may be found without objection that there is block voting, or assumed without objection that there is block voting. Your Honor. If, if you don't wish to present evidence. That, Your Honor, there, there was, first of all, we were not stipulating it, that it did exist. We stipulated that they presented evidence that the court could find that it did. Yeah, I realize, and but that, when you then say, and we don't wish to present any evidence on it, it sounds to me as though you're conceding the issue. Your Honor, we didn't uh, believe it stands on its own. We did not wish to be heard further. We did not wish to take additional time on that, given the circumstances of the case. The other factor that I think is perhaps most important in considering this is, uh, touched on it briefly earlier, Section 2 clearly applies to all jurisdictions. And without the guidance of the 50% rule. Bodies that are drafting are left with an uncertain standard. And a standard, in this case, so far as we know, 
the state retained an expert after the litigation began to support the finding. He'd been used previously. Are every local government body required to retain such an expert to proceed simply to redistrict? That, if you don't have a clear rule to follow, presents a problem for the many government bodies that have to redistrict on a regular basis. What was wrong with the clear rule that Justice Souter suggested in the LULAC case? I'm sorry, Your Honor? Justice Souter, in his opinion, in the LULAC case? Yes, Your Honor. He suggested what he called a hard-edged, a clear hard-edged rule, which was not going to be an exclusive rule, but anyway, if you met that standard, you were okay. Your Honor, I, I certainly will not criticize the rule proposed by Justice Souter, but it's, it's I think okay. that it's, it's <laughs> I did. Your, your Honor, I see. I, I, I think from uh, the perspective, and, and I can't help but wear a local government hat at times, that it is not as clear-edged as it seemed to the court, at least to Justice Souter, that the 50% rule does provide a very clear, very readily discernible rule that can be followed without getting involved. And I do believe that you also will result in, if you adopt this rule, race becomes very likely a predominant factor in every redistricting decision because based on the cases that have come before you already, there have been claims that 26 percent, 25 percent plus reliable crossover. I don't see how those claims could possibly succeed. But I thought, let's go back to sort of step one. My mind turns a little confused when I start thinking of these cases. Are we talking about a case of where the claim is normally vote dilution. Is that yes or no? Yes, Your Honor. Section 2. Does vote dilution mean we who are a minority group, let's say a black group, could have elected a candidate of our choice more likely than the white group? But because you are engaged in vote dilution, that isn't going to happen anymore. Is that the, the form of the claim? Yes, Your Honor, and I believe That's the form of the claim. Then, is our problem here that to see whether that's so, you have to see whether the black group did really vote as a group? Did they used to have a good chance to elect the person they want? And does the white group tend to also vote as a group and swamp them? Is that what we're trying to find out? Your Honor, I, I'm not sure that is entirely what we're trying to find out, because certainly districts are created where there was no minority incumbent. And that can happen because of changes in demographics or a variety there of There are a lot of reasons it can happen, but is the evil that we're trying to get at, the evil of a black group, when they stick together in a polarized voting, having less of a chance of getting their candidate elected than when the white group does the same? Your Honor, I believe the answer is yes, we are trying to prevent them from having that's less That's what we're trying to prevent. Okay. If that's what we're trying to prevent, then haven't we learned that putting a threshold, so you can't even get in the door, you can't even get in the door 
unless the black group accounted for 50 percent of something, the voters or the people who turn out. But that doesn't make much sense for the reason that Justice Scalia started with. It doesn't make much sense because sometimes they account for 51 percent, but they can't elect anybody because they all divide on four different people. Or maybe they didn't turn out. On the other hand, sometimes if they account for 43 percent, they could elect the candidate of their choice. So it looks as if that 50 percent is pretty arbitrary, and we're looking for a better criterion. Is there anything wrong with what I've said so far? Respectfully, Your Honor, I believe there is, because you said you look to see is there vote dilution. Well, there needs to be something to measure that by. Okay. Section 5, we've got retrogression. It's uh, yeah. not simple. Here, what we look, we could we look to see whether the three Gingles factors, whatever they are, one was, are, is the black group numerous enough to elect the candidates of their choice, reasonably compact, politically cohesive? And then you look to see, does the white group tend to vote as a block to stop them? Yes, Your Honor. That's what we should do. Your Honor. Now, then I'm back to my problem that sometimes the 50 percent criteria just doesn't measure that first part. And so you're saying, well, any other matter would be worse, but I bet we could invent some that were actually better. Suppose you wouldn't have to go to 20 percent. Suppose, for example, you started looking in the 40 percents and you said, you know, if the black group is going to elect the candidate of their choice with 40 percent, 45 percent, they're going to need a lot of crossovers because they may only vote, you know, only 80 percent may turn out. They're going to need a lot of crossovers. And the more crossovers you have to have, the harder it is to say that that white group is out there trying to beat them. So there's a kind of natural stopping place. When I worked out the numbers, it seemed that natural stopping place fell around 42, 43 percent. It sort of fell if you said that that, that, that the black group, if you insisted the black group had to be just twice as many as the white group that crossed over, a little arbitrary, but at least we're getting to the same, to the right thing. I mean, that, you see, respond as you wish. Thank you, Your Honor. I, I, it may take me a second to, to take it all in. It seems to me that the, uh, the reason the 50 percent rule does work is at 50 percent, there is a claim that there is the opportunity. And there are things, voter registration, voter turnout, a lot of factors that can influence at that point. But that doesn't prevent there from being opportunity. That's the choice of whatever group is involved. You, you start dropping below 50 percent, and then they're not being denied an equal opportunity. They have the same opportunity any other group does. This would require trying to, because what basically the petitioner's position is, the state in this position wants is, you take a minority group and then you find presumably another majority group that shares political and partisan goals with them and you combine those two together. So you look not only to the race of one group, that predominates first. Then you go find like-minded members of the majority group to join with them and so that is what is being required. At that point, you're not talking about them being treated 
less equal than anyone else. Mr. Having Mr. Thurman, can I ask you sort of over this question? It seems to me that a rigid 51 percent rule assumes that the minority communities throughout the country are all alike and that there are not variety in every district, every part of the country where you have this problem. There are variations. Maybe 51 percent wouldn't be enough in some areas because the minority group might itself be divided, as is often the case. I, I think the underlying premise, that underlying, the premise underlying your argument is that all minorities are exactly alike. Your That's Honor, why we can have this mathematical figure, and that answers the question. Your Honor, I categorically reject that as the underlying basis of our argument. That is handled by the third jingles prong and the second jingles prong in terms of when you look at what the coalition vote is and then you look at how politically cohesive it is. So it could be that 50 percent is arguably not enough under the second jingles provision, but that until you get to 50 percent, you're, again, it is, I believe it's been described as a gatekeeping function. It does keep the court out of it. And it is going to, if this happens, you start looking at combining a combination of race or other minority status and partisan politics and combining them together for the purpose of electing particular candidates. And do not believe that has ever been something that this court has endorsed as the purpose of the Voting Rights Act and that if that is the position it takes, it starts to run into issues with is such supportable under the Shaw line of cases, under equal protection. What, what is Justice Breyer proposed a rule at the end of his question. He said, suppose you make it the threshold instead of 50 percent would be twice as many in the African-American population as in the crossover group. That would be the threshold. Your Honor, I, first, uh, I believe, as he said, uh, that Justice Breyer said, that's an arbitrary number that he picked up on. The 50 percent, the reason we would submit that's not simply an arbitrary number is that it does deal with then at that point there's an opportunity. Regardless of whether there is the what, it certainly does not exist. Just but, but you're saying it's an opportunity, and what you mean is it is sufficient to provide an opportunity. And Justice Breyer's question is, isn't the two-to-one ratio something that we should consider as also being sufficient to provide an opportunity? Your Honor, I would say that that would not be appropriate because at that point you're looking on the basis of race to give one group a greater opportunity than another. And the Voting Rights Act deals with one group being given less opportunity than another. And so if, if you are attempting to draw a district that bases itself on race, that attempts to give one group a well, position. It's a, gra it's a greater opportunity than, than would be given to them uh, in, in a district or a, a pair of district districts that splits the minority population in half. But how is it in some abstract sense a greater opportunity? Your the Honor, opportunities are, are measured on the ground, not in the abstract. Your Honor, my answer to that would be that the what is being proposed is it is required. It's no longer left up to the legislature to decide whether that is appropriate and that since it is a requirement, that is not part of the political process 
and it goes to whether that is giving they're no longer looking to whether they have less, it's whether they are in fact given more. Thank you, Council. Mr. Josepher? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Petitioner's proposed expansion of Section 2's traditional coverage would cause three serious problems. First, it would deprive state and local legislatures, as well as the courts, of a baseline against which to determine when a Section 2 district must be drawn in the first place, when to engage in this race-conscious exercise in the first place. Second, it raises the serious constitutional concerns identified in LULAC, especially because it combines not only racial gerrymandering, but with political party gerrymandering all at the same time. And third, it requires difficult predictive judgments about how people would react, how people would vote in a future proposed district, something that is not required under the traditional jingles analysis. And these problems would exist nationwide because Section 2 applies to every districting done in every jurisdiction at every level nationwide, be it a county, city, or locality down to the school board or town council level. Now, on the first of those points, under the traditional jingles test, the scope of consideration of race and other things is limited to majority-minority districts, and that provides an easy focal point for analysis that anyone drawing a district can understand. I I thought you were conceding that it isn't a rigid rule and that the North Carolina Supreme Court should have to be — I mean, it could be 48 percent, I think you said. We have identified two narrow exceptions, neither of which the Court really needs to reach in this case. The first is in instances of intentional discrimination. And the important thing there is, first, that's academic, because if you could prove intentional vote dilution, you could proceed with a constitutional claim, and Section 2 would not add anything anyway. Intentional by those who draw the district? Yes, exactly. Um, And the the point here is, because this is not a maximization statute, one needs a baseline for determining the denial of an equal opportunity to elect. And the fact that what the people drawing the district were trying to do was to deprive the minority group of that opportunity is a perfectly good alternative baseline. Our other proposed narrow exception, which also is not even close to being implicated here, is is basically an evidentiary one, that there are close cases where when you're trying to figure out whether the minority group population is above 50 percent, you may not be sure because these are estimates, they're very reliable, but we would impose about a 2 percent cushion there, we'd say a 48 percent rule, to adjust, to account for the possibility that if there is that much evidentiary uncertainty, it makes sense to say that the essential tie goes to the plaintiff for, for purposes of that test. However, here we're at 39 percent. You don't know until you litigate whether you're, whether you're really uh, talking about a, a possible 2 percent variation. So, that, I mean, I, I, th- I think you have to concede un- under, under your test uh, that there's going to be more litigation, there are going to be more claims than there are under a, under a 50 percent. No, because trying to de- — I'd say actually the opposite, because trying to determine — well, I'd say this. Trying to determine 48 percent is no more difficult than trying to determine 50 percent. Except that you got a better chance, so you're more likely to do it. There's a very slight narrow of it. Of of sure, any time you drop the number from 50 — Two percent is pretty more, big in an election. Well, in, in practice, I mean, remember, the, the majority-minority rule has been followed in almost every jurisdiction nationwide for more than two decades. And so far, I've seen one 48% case. There may have been others, but there, there don't seem to have been very many, at least. If you want an absolute arbitrary rule, which you're headed towards, which will just question is whether they get in the door. If they're in the door, they have to prove the three facts. And you want to keep certain people out. Okay? Suppose you said, well, 42%. That gives you down to 40 with your two thing. Instead of 50, 
But you're out anyway if the crossover vote from the white part is more than half of what the whole vote is with the black and white together on that side. So you have a two-to-one ratio. Now, the only virtue of that is it was an effort to try to get an arbitrary rule, which you have with your 50 percent. It's only a little bit more difficult to, to, to administer and is likely to get in more cases that are justified. But they still have to prove their three factors. Well, the, the, there are a couple of things. The first is that, textually speaking, it, it, what the statute refers to is an equal opportunity to elect the group of the, the representative of their choice. And it, at least the most principled line is the majority-minority rule, because if you have by yourselves a majority of the electorate, you have, at least in theory, the opportunity to elect the representative of your choice. When you go beyond that, it really is, an, an, at that point, it really is an unprincipled realistic line drawing. fact that in every group, including lots of African-American groups, there, 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 it's not 100 percent African-American at all. There, there are a few others who will come along, and, and that's still the candidate of that community's yes, but, choice. Right, but that's, so we want a little flexibility here is all that I'm suggesting. Yeah, the problem is once you go below what is at least a, a principled 50 percent line, it's not clear where, where, where one would ever stop. And un, under your approach, I mean, two things happen. One, you definitely open the door if you're down at potentially below 42, especially I mean, in this case it's 39. No, I can't get below 42. So I'm not going to get below 40 no matter what, even with your thumb on the scale. I mean, so what, they're, one, they're, what? They're finished at 40, and they're not even in at 40 uh, <laughs> if they have to depend more than two to one on the crossover. Right. I mean, one problem is that if what you're looking for is, is, is a principled rule that can be justified, I understand 50, I understand a slight evidentiary cushion. 42 really does seem, when what you're trying to determine is the denial of an equal opportunity to be coming out of nowhere. The other advantage the 50 percent rule has is the advantages of incumbency. In effect, it has been the way the cases have been litigated for more than two decades now, and that has shown, first, that it's workable, and second, that it does not appear to have left some gaping hole in Section 2's coverage. If it had, Congress likely would have attempted to amend the statute over the past two decades. And the other thing — I'm sorry. I wanted — I hope that you could have a brief time to discuss your third rationale that's going to re require a determination of how people would vote. Yeah. Under Jingles, one typically looks to what's actually happened in the past. The third Jingles factor, for example, looks to whether white block voting in actual elections has generally been sufficient to prevent the election um, of the minority group's candidate of choice in the past. So it's a straightforward, historic-based inquiry. Here, however, a state or local legislature at the outset is looking to create a new district based on a prediction that it will elect the minority group's candidate of choice. So as a practical matter, you start with the racial makeup of some people and the, the political partisanship of others. But you can't stop there because you then have to predict turnout by each group, crossover voting by each group. And as a practical matter, those things will vary based on who the candidates are, whether there's an incumbent, whether the incumbent is the minority group's candidate of choice. And especially in local elections, such data might not even be available, which is a point that was made in the topside amicus brief filed by the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and others. If I could also turn to the constitutional avoidance point, in that perspective, this proposal is really the worst of all worlds, because the way you construct these districts is you take some people based on race, others based on political party affiliation. And race can't predominate, and a majority of the court has also held that purely partisan gerrymandering, at least if you set justiciability to the side, is also unconstitutional. But this is both. And what you would have is nationwide, in every jurisdiction, every districting, a mandated, required consideration of both race and partisanship that goes far beyond what has traditionally been required under Section 2 and, I suspect, far beyond what normally happens at the local level. Do you have a view on how we should approach the stipulation 
um, adopted below? I think the easy way to cut through it is that in the State Supreme Court, respondent abandoned all arguments other than the first jingles factor. So the first jingles factor, based on what happened in the State Supreme Court, is the only thing now before the Court. It, what would remain potentially undermanned is that if this Court were to abandon the traditional understanding of, first, of the first jingles factor and impose a new understanding, then the adjudication of that might be open undermanned. But respondents have abandoned everything else in the State Supreme Court. Um, finally, I also can't help but mention there's a, there's a great irony here in that petitioner's essential position is that back when race relations were worse and back when there was much more racial block voting, majority-minority districts worked okay. But now that race relations have improved and there's much more crossover voting, we should now require greater consideration of race as well as partisanship than had ever been done before under the same unamended statute. And if I could turn also then just to the point that at the outset, a, a state or local legislature as well as a court really does need to know where to start. State and local legislatures are the ones that are supposed to be drawing these lines. That means they need clear administrable rules to follow. And the simpler they are, the better the chance they'll have to do it. And if they can figure it out at the outset, the less consideration of race and partisanship becomes necessary. And the 50% rule, as a practical matter, has worked for a couple decades in this respect. And if one goes beyond that, there's also no principled stopping point. Here's 39%, which doesn't seem close to me, um, or under Justice, Justice Breyer's rationale. Which Mentioning how well it worked, did you see the graphs? One of the amicus briefs have the graph showing what the 50% rule did for one gerrymander and how the, the lesser percentage worked out for Remember, which were much more, the, not using the 50% rule produced much more compact districts. Well, there are three things about those, those, those graphs. The first is that the less compact maps in, in the League of Women's Voter Briefs, those were the districts that were determined to be unconstitutional. Yeah, so they don't provide they were, a baseline. They were designed to produce 50%, and that's why they got so, so, uh, <laughs> so grotesque. Right. Another thing is that it seems to be a common misperception that our view is that Section 2 prohibits the drawing of crossover districts, which is not the case at all. The question here is whether they are required. And if a, district, if, if a jurisdiction wants to draw a crossover district, then at least in principle, nothing is stopping it from doing so. However, if what you were to do was to require the drawing of these crossover districts, that could create some funny maps of its own, because if you have to now reach out to grab jurisdiction-wide, look to every significant pocket of minority voters, look to whoever you can put together who you think would vote alike, which as a practical matter means same political party, then you're going to be acquiring the same dynamics that led to some of those very strange maps in the shallow litigation in the first place. Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. Josepher. Uh, Mr. Browning, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Let me first of all start with Justice Breyer's question about the arbitrary nature of the 50 percent rule. The 50 percent rule, let there be no doubt, is extremely arbitrary. Even under the government's um, 2 percent cushion, what would happen is you have a district that's 40 percent, 46 percent African American. That district could be freely carved up into two districts of 23 percent each neither of which would provide an equal opportunity to elect. Even when you're in a situation like this case, where the district is actually functioning and has a proven ability to elect a minority preferred candidate. Moreover, well, isn't, wouldn't Justice Breyer's 40 percent rule be just as arbitrary? Uh, Justice Alito, it is important to recognize that there are, are significant districts that are out there that would not be protected under the 50 percent rule. 
And I, I understand the Court's desire to have some sort of limitation on the size of the district. We believe it's already in there, in place, as a result of the LULAC decision. It's in place because in North Carolina, as a practical matter, you can't go much below 40 percent and have a district that will actually work. But this, but yours is below, just slightly below. Uh, the voting age population is 39.36 percent based upon um, uh, the census data. The government wants to use a 2 percent cushion um, as their threshold. But there are some significant problems with that, because when you look at the overcount of white voters, um, the Census Bureau recognizes that the overcount is basically 2 percent there in and of itself, and the other undercount of black voters is a 1 percent undercount. So even a 48 percent doesn't even get anywhere close. Moreover, you have districts where there are a number of eligible number of people that are counted in the census but are not truly eligible to vote. That's reflected in the brief by the states um, at page 28 in footnote 2. The states make the point that there are many districts where you have military bases, we have colleges that cause this to be an extremely arbitrary rule. And in North Carolina, there are districts where once you remove the military base, where, where most of the population will not be voting in that district, there is a shift of even 12 percent in the minority voting age population increasing by, by 12 percent once you just remove the military bases from the equation. So it's the rule that I suggested, though there are arbitrary aspects, is a better targeted, more administrable, or equally administrable, or not much worse administrable, arbitrary rule. Justice Breyer, in our view, the rule that should be applied is consistent with the rule in LULAC that the um, minority group is substantially larger than its coalition partner. Here, the minority group is 39.36 percent African American. It only requires an additional roughly 11 percent white crossover voting. So the the white crossover voting that's needed is only a third of the size of the minority group. There must be somebody there to get you over 50 percent. I'm sorry? 33 plus 11 is 44. So where does the rest come from? Your Honor, this, this district is 39.36 percent African American. Yeah, that's 40. And then, oh, I see. It's and then, it, so you need 11 percent to cross over voting. Um, so 11 percent of the electorate to join if with. If they all vote cohesively. Yes, Your Honor. And here, here, the minority group, the um, experts' testimony is that they do vote cohesively. Well, but, but, it's, but it's a necessary predicate to this very question that the majority group, the, the white group, does not vote cohesively. Under your hypothetical, at least 11 percent have to swing over. The, the, you know, the white vote does not vote 100 percent cohesively, but it is still at such high levels that there's only a limited amount of crossover voting. It is still very racially polarized, and if district lines are not taken into account, the, the, the votes of black voters in the district will be drowned out by the white voters that are voting against that minority candidate simply because that candidate's a minority. There is some crossover voting, but not enough to uh, make the uh, — for us to lose on the third jingles prong. Thank, Thank you, you, counsel. The case is submitted.